Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Please read with me the verses in bold. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. Am I not on? Mic testing? All right, perfect. All right. Thank you, thank you. Good morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us here this morning, whether you're online uh, or whether you're here in person. Uh, whether you're here for the first time or whether you're here for the hundredth time, uh, thanks for being here and being with us. I don't know if we've met a hundred times. Have we? I don't know. Got to do the math. But uh, thanks for being here. Uh, again, thanks for being here on a, uh, a lot cooler Sunday uh, than the rest of the week. Well, friends, uh, there's a saying that, uh, that goes like this. It ain't over till it's over, right? It's not over. The show's not over until the... And I don't mean to be offensive. I just I thought I'd put that in there. It could as well be uh, the short Korean guy sings. I don't know. Um, but it ain't over until it's over. And again, I think we feel that way, especially in the, the realm of, of sports. And especially when our teams are down, we say it's not over till it's over. Even if a team is behind, there's still a chance. Until the final whistle, until the final inning, until the final play. You see, the thing is, one should never assume the outcome of a situation until it has reached its end. And you kind of get that sense that the movie is over, that the play is finished. The book has concluded when Haman was hung instead of Mordecai on the 75-foot gallows. The quote-unquote bad guy has been eliminated. He is out of the picture as of chapter 7. If you're just joining us, uh, as Brad mentioned, we're in the last two sermons of the book of Esther. Haman, the second in command to King Ahasuerus in the land of Persia, had set out to destroy Mordecai and all of his people, again, the exiled Jews who found themselves living in this strange land. And among them is Esther, a fellow Jew, a cousin of Mordecai, the queen of the land, and for whom the book is named. The book of Esther has not so much as one mention of the name of God, and yet providentially, it's God who works and orchestrates all the events of the book. Providentially, it was Queen Vashti, the former queen, who was ousted for failing to appear before the king and his guests. Providentially, it was a young, incognito Jewish gal who wins a Compulsory beauty contest thrown by the kingdom to replace Queen Vashti. Providentially, it was the king who couldn't sleep at night. And as he has a talking head, read him the account of memorable deeds, a record of legal decisions of the king's courts, of royal edicts, of battles won, of tributes paid. And so it happens that the king stumbles upon the moment two traitors attempt to assassinate him, and only to be saved providentially by Mordecai. Providentially, 
It was Haman who walks in at that exact moment and is ordered to pay tribute to his mortal enemy, Mordecai. Haman is soon found out, his plans and his evil schemes unraveled, and ironically, the gallows on which Haman erects to hang Mordecai becomes the very one in which he himself is hanged. Poetic justice. End of story. The fat lady sings. Well, not quite yet. There's still trouble for the Jews. The Jews are still in imminent, in imminent danger. Although Haman is gone and the edict remains in full effect, an edict cannot be overturned. And as we read chapter 8, we are reminded that God takes what appears to be hopeless situations and reverses them to save his people. In the book of Esther, chapter 8, verse 1, it reads, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. In a drastic turn of events, the king bestows Haman's house, that is, Haman's estate and all of his possessions to Queen Esther. And then the text reads, Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king listened to this. How is this for a great reversal? The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. As I mentioned before, I mean, the book of Esther is a satire. And you see the play of, uh, of these turn of events where, where Haman is the second most powerful man in the kingdom. And it's turned over to Mordecai, a Jew. My friends, great reversals just happens to be one of the great themes and the great patterns of not just this book in the book of Esther, but throughout the scriptures. Mordecai replaces Haman as the king's right-hand man, the number two, the second most powerful man in the empire. And he rules from, every, uh, from that very home that once belonged to his enemy, from rags to riches. I mean, just think about the themes, from rags to riches, from death to life, from ashes to mourning, to a place of royal glory. Again, it's a trajectory of the story, and it's actually a trajectory that we find repeated again and again in Scripture. Mordecai and Esther are but two more in a long line of righteous sufferers whom God rewards in the end. Let me give you one other example in the Old Testament. First Samuel, we read something very similar. We find a wonderful story of a gracious God who intervenes in the life of a barren woman named Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Hannah says this, The Lord kills and brings to life. The Lord brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
Again, this is just one book in 66 books of the Old and New Testament where you see this, this theme, this pattern of Scripture of the rich and poor and death and life and mourning and, and rejoicing. And isn't it what's happening here in this story in the book of Esther? God literally takes Mordecai from the ash heap, sitting in sackcloth and mourning outside of the king's gate, unable to do anything to save himself or his people, and God raises him up to sit with princes and inherits a seat of honor. The personal deliverance of Esther and Mordecai is certainly significant, but the larger issue remains the fate of the Jewish people as a whole. Even though Haman was now once dead, I'm sorry, even though Haman was now dead, the Jews were not yet safe. And so in, in Esther chapter 8, verses 3 through 7, Esther pleads with the king to change course on the previous edict to destroy the Jews. She weeps and she cries and she pleads with the king to avert the evil plan of Haman. She's persistent. Again, when you read through this, there's this eerie contrast. Again, when you read through the whole book of Esther, there's these eerie contrasts that you see from the beginning to the end and in chapters 1 through chapter 10, from the beginning to the end, this eerie contrast. You see in chapter 7, you see that uh, Esther, I'm sorry, Haman falls down before Esther pleading for his life. And in chapter 8, Esther falling before the king to plead, not for her own life, but the lives of her people. She has a greater care for her people than her own life. She bravely stands before the king's presence without approval in order to begin the petition to save her people. And now she mourns with tears in order to have the decree of destruction revoked. So the question in verse 6 for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? What's interesting is here the satire for us to see is in full force. Here is an all-powerful king who is unable to exercise his all-encompassing power. It's satire at its finest. The book mocks the so-called powers of this world. It pokes fun at the claims of power and worldly empires, and it disarms them and cuts them down to size. It's funny because the king has this absolute power, and yet he has no power to overturn his own edicts, his own decrees, his own laws. In verse 8, you read that. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's, uh, with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's edict was irrevocable. The king's edict was permanent. The irrevocability of a law was noted first in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, and again, it's noted here in chapter 8 as well. But if you know anything about governments, any law, there's a loophole. There's a workaround to every law. And the Persians had a way of figuring out laws that were a workaround for, uh, to previous laws that had been in place. And again, there were times when there were laws that were contradictory to former laws. I mean, sound familiar? I don't mean to mock the laws of the 
United States of America. But there are loopholes and contradictions, and, and here's the workaround. Look at verses 9 through 14. Here is the reversal. Again, Esther has poured out her request. The king, for his part, has reassured Esther that she and Mordecai are now, in fact, positioned themselves to undo the edict that Haman has enacted. But the question is, how? Mordecai wore the royal signet ring taken from the hand of the condemned Haman. It is a great reversal of events. And if you remember in chapter 3, uh, verse 10, the king takes off the signet ring and gives it to Haman. So he possesses the king's authority in the king's name. There was given to a Gentile, uh, Haman, the Amalekite, and here is given to a Jew, uh, Mordecai. And so for the first time, it was for the destruction of the Jews, and now it will be for their salvation. They contrast, but they confirm that God is the one who sets up rulers and disposes rulers in order to accomplish his purposes. Persian laws could not be revoked exactly, but you know what? They could be contradicted. They could be overwritten with a new law. A new law could supersede the old one. Here we get to see something of the uh, perversity of the Persian Empire. We cannot change our minds, but we don't mind contradicting ourselves. We can't repeal the old law, but we can pass a new one that says the opposite. And that's King Ahasuerus' advice to Mordecai and to Esther. So what is the new edict? The new edict mandated was measure for measure retaliation by the Jews against their enemies. How do you circumvent a law with, uh, which mandates destruction and which must be allowed to continue to its fulfillment? Again, it's that you provide one that contradicts the other one. The former edict said, kill all the Jews. The second one says, well, you can kill your enemy if you are a Jew, if they attack you first. If you cannot understand the premise and you can begin to see the book of Esther, what it's showing us and what it's intended to reveal, the word is irrevocable. In this case, a word which brings death, and yet another word is given that grants life. The king will not allow one word of reversal of the former command, but yet its power can be annulled through a new command, a law of salvation to override the law of death. In verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or, pro or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Again, the initial edict ordered the death of all the Jews in Persia, and this new one allowed the Jews to exercise self-defense on those who attacked them. You'll notice a great change of events. A reversal of Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes to royal robes of blue and white, of fine linen and purple, to wear a golden crown on his head instead of ashes. And instead of mourning, the text reads, light and gladness and joy and honor. How ironic. Mordecai is granted royal honors, not just in the presence of the king, but as he went in and out from the king's presence, his garments and crown will be seen by all. In verse 15, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king wearing these royal robes of blue and white and a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. In verse 16, 
The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whenever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Just a few points here. I wanted to just, just some observations from the text this morning. What does this mean for us? As we read the book of Esther, and as we read particularly the book of Esther chapter 8, what does this mean for us? Well, perhaps you've found yourself this morning looking for a turn of events, a change of circumstances, maybe a change of scenery, or maybe a reversal of fortunes. Perhaps this morning you've come looking for answers to the questions of life, wondering if there's hope in the midst of hopelessness. For whatever reason you're here, we're glad, we're excited that you're here with us. We don't think that you are here by accident, but perhaps by the divine providence of a God who cares for you and loves you. My friends, the story of Esther is a story of great reversals. The story of Esther is a story of how God changes hopelessness and brings hope. Where there was once darkness, he brings light. And where there was once death, he brings life. The divine reversal, possible only through the power of God at work in the affairs of humanity. How can we stand the presence of a holy God who will deliver us from this edict of death? What we need, friends, is an Esther of our own. Someone who will put aside personal interests, Someone who will put aside safety and risk dignity and honor and even life itself in order to plead our case before the great king. Such a mediator is ours in Christ Jesus. Church, Christ offers hope. Christ's work reverses the irreversible, undoes what has been done. To provide a way where there is no way. Christ is our Esther. This is the grand reversal to which all the reversals in the book of Esther's story point. All the reversals that we read about in these 10 chapters of the book of Esther all point to Christ. When you read the book of Esther, I think, again, it's been rich as we've been studying it. Because as you read each chapter, you see a, a type of Christ an intercessor, a better king, a better law, life, and a law that brings salvation instead of death. Every chapter points to Jesus. Every chapter is a story of the gospel. Come alive where there once, was once death, a, a breath of fresh life is infused. What's fascinating is that God turns a horrible law created by Haman into a great victory for his people. The great reversal is that death itself was undone. A new law would fulfill the old law. A new decree would be issued where the old law had condemned us to death. Where the old law brought death, the new law brings life. And Jesus Christ, by his death, 
brings life to us. I feel like uh, we've preached 10 times through the book of Esther, and I think you've heard us say the same thing 10 times. But it's the gospel story that you and I need to hear again and again. I know I do. The one that says that I cannot do anything with my own hands to, to merit my salvation. The gospel that tells me that there is an old law that condemns us, not because the law is bad, but because we fall short. The book of James tells us that we're trespassers, that we're violators of the law, and that we have no hope apart from the grace and the mercy of God. God. 